lot in the way of announcements. It was great to see everyone here on the 4th. Um, Doug, if you just want to come up, I know that Doug has a, a little announcement about uh, Wednesday night. I know a, a few weeks back I forgot to get him a microphone, so I made sure this time to have him come up to the mic. Thanks, Alan. So uh, this is going to be our last week of our adult series. So the first three weeks we looked at something called critical race theory and how it's encroaching into evangelical churches. And we were really looking at it from the perspective of, you know, how it's dividing people and dividing the body. Um, it labels people as oppressors or oppressed. And from a biblical perspective, we're saying we're, we're all one. Okay, we're all created in God's image, and we're all sinful. We're, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not divided by class or race or or gender, all. And we're all in need of a savior. And that's how we want to look at it from a biblical perspective. Um, so this week we actually have a uh, pastor coming, a guest pastor, uh, Jamel Crawford. He's from the New Life Center. He's the lead pastor at New Life Center in Des Moines. Um, he uh, also started the, the Dream Center and, and uh, is an assistant varsity coach for Roosevelt. And he's going to come and, and speak to us because if we're saying we're rejecting CRT, Okay, critical race theory, that doesn't mean that there aren't issues within our community, within our country, within our world, that we still as a body of believers need to address and we need to um, take action where, where necessary. And so we're trying to get some different perspectives on that, on how we can take a biblical approach. And so we've got this guest pastor coming in. So even if you weren't uh, able to attend the first three sessions, we want to open this up to everyone to come um, this Wednesday night at 6.30, um, and hear uh, Pastor Jamel um, share with us and how we can uh, continue to work um, on the different relations and, and unifying the body, okay? If you have any questions, please let me know. When we are working on child care, if uh, that helps anybody make their decision. So, thanks. I appreciate Doug and the work that he's done putting together the series for the summer, so I just really want to encourage you to uh, join us if you could on Wednesday night. It, it'll be a, a rich time, I trust, of discussion and conversation and information that will help us. If you're here as a, a guest in person uh, for the first time, there are bulletins on the welcome table. If you happen to get a bulletin, there is a flap, an extra flap there that has a chance for you, an opportunity for you to fill out some information if you would, and at the end of the service, uh, when they talk, we'll talk about the offering, which is a collection box on the Welcome Center. If you just uh, fill out that information and tear it off and then put it in the offering box, that's all we'd ask you to put in the offering boxes as our guests. We're just glad that you're worshiping with us. We want to welcome also those who are joining us online. We're glad that you're with us too. I'd invite you to join me in prayer if you would. Father, uh, we've uh, been singing about the forgiveness that we have in Christ, and I thank you so much, Father, for the forgiveness that you purchased for us through your Son, our Savior. And I ask that now as we take a deep dive into a passage of Scripture that looks more intently at what it means to be forgiven and what it means to forgive, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law that would transform our lives that would bring and continue to foster unity in the body of Christ, that would be used for 
this body to be a testimony to the world of the reality of the person and the work of Jesus and would bring you glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As a new believer, we'll call her Sue, she was growing in her faith. And she shared with me that as a young child, there was a particular member of her family who had severely mistreated her. And as she grew in her understanding of God's forgiveness that she had experienced, she became aware of the need that she had in her heart to extend that forgiveness to the person who had been responsible for this mistreatment. And so she traveled several states away and met with the person and said, I am now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, and I want you to know that I forgive you. What Sue did in extending forgiveness to this member of her earthly family is exactly a picture of what God expects to happen with every one of us who are in God's family, that we are to be there to forgive. But here's the deal. Nothing is more contrary to our fallen nature than to extend forgiveness. It grates against everything, against everything in our fallen nature, but there's nothing more central to the life of a Christian than, than, to, than to extend forgiveness. Because Jesus himself is the one who modeled it. As he was nearing the cross, he said, and was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is God's word that mandates. It's not just a model from Jesus. It's a mandate for us in the, in the scriptures. In Colossians chapter 3, the apostle Paul talks about the fact that we should, just as God has forgiven you, so we should forgive one another. Now, that's my paraphrase. I could go back and quote it, but you can look it up. It's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. In the same way that the Lord has forgiven you, so also should you forgive others, okay? So that's what we should do, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So it's the model of Jesus, it's the mandate of the Scriptures, and it is also made possible to the person and work of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, and we don't need to go to the slide, I'm going to go there later, but it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him, you have, in, whom, in him you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. So it's the, modeled by Jesus, it's mandated by the Scriptures, and it's made possible through the person and the work of Jesus that we would forgive one another. There's nothing that reflects God's character or communicates his love more tangibly than forgiveness. Forgiveness is a necessary ingredient for a church to be healthy. Okay? Has to be forgiveness for a church to be healthy. Last week we talked about tender love and tough love. Well, we ended up with the tough love part, right? 
Uh, tough love within the body, within the family, is compassionate confrontation with the goal of genuine restoration. And this compassionate confrontation with the goal of restoration is keeps the body pure, right? Keeps the body, people in the body living for Jesus. It promotes unity and it reflects the reality of Jesus to a lost and dying world. But it begs the question, how often should we actually extend this forgiveness to these people? How often are we going to do it? But all of that, this compassionate confrontation with the goal of restoration is predicated upon the a, 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 a generous supply and a generous giving of mercy to, to people around us. See, uh, there's really nothing that breaks down the, the barriers that sin and Satan place between those in the body of Christ like forgiveness. I mean, Satan and, and, and sin wants to build up walls between us. When I'm doing marriage counseling or pre-marriage counseling, I like to talk about this. As we interact with each other, we offend each other and we hurt each other. We make uh, offend each other. So just imagine that between the two of you, they're, 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 you're, you're putting a brick. And so every injury you inflict is a brick that's between you and the person that you injure. Well, you know, if you just keep putting bricks up, pretty soon you have a nice big wall and there's no relationship. Satan and the enemy tries to build brick walls between us, and it's forgiveness that tears them down. And so I would like you to turn, if you will, in your Bible to a passage that deals particularly with this as we march through the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 21, Jesus provides us with a couple of instructions to govern our practice of forgiveness within God's family, which is what he calls us to. I'm in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 40, 35, and I'm going to read uh, this text before you, okay? Then Peter came, now then right after Jesus got done talking to them about this compassionate confrontation, church discipline in the, within the body of Christ. So it's then that Jesus showed, that Peter speaks up. Isn't it interesting, Peter? Uh, who do people say that I am? Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter, well, well, hey, Jesus, you can't go to the cross. No, you can't do that. I mean, every time you turn around, Peter up in the Mount of Transfiguration, hey, let's build him a, let's build him a little tabernacle here. No, Peter, just be quiet. Come on. And then now here's Peter again. And he says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Like seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to, up to 70 times seven. Now, some of your versions may say 77. I would go with the 70 times seven. For this reason, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment be made, to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me. I will repay you everything, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. And his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, 
notice the words here, have patience with me and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Fat chance. So when his fellow slaves saw that what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. A couple of instructions here, maybe more, but at least that I'm two that I'm going to mention. First of all is there's an expectation of forgiveness within the family of God. There's an expectation of forgiveness in verses 21 and 22. And there's two sides of a conversation between Peter and Jesus that illumine to us this expectation of forgiveness within the family. First of all, we have Peter's uh, request is an assumption, or Peter's request assumes, or maybe even better, I thought of this as I was reviewing things last night, articulates the expectation of forgiveness within the family. It doesn't just assume, it actually articulates the expectation. Lord, how often shall I, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Well, I mean, Peter was not stupid. He, he had experienced this, you know, sin himself, right? So he understood our, our tendency to sin. How easy it is for us to fall back into sin. Even the exact same sin that we had just been forgiven for. That's human nature. We, you know, I don't, maybe it's never happened in your, your life. But you, know, you, you say something stupid or uh, insensitive to a person. And then uh, you say, oh, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? And about ten minutes later, there you are saying something else stupid or insensitive to the very same person. Well... Peter understood that. And he also understood what Jesus had just said. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, believers are commanded to confront sin and to seek reconciliation. And so Peter, quite honestly, is just saying, oh, how long do we do this? You know, I mean, how many times do we go to this brother, or how many times does this brother or sister sin against me, and I'm going to forgive them? So like, can you give me a, a ballpark figure? Like maybe seven times? And Peter throws it out there. And it is, if, if, if our brother listens to us, if you remember Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, verse 15, it says, and if your brother sins, go and reprove him. And if he listens to you, what does that mean? If he repents. In fact, there's another passage, not a parallel passage, but in Luke chapter 17, in verse 3, Jesus actually says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ who sin against each other, and then they, they confess it, repent, and we're supposed to extend forgiveness. And what does it mean to forgive? What actually, what actually is forgiveness? Now, there's probably a lot of definitions. I'm just going to give you one that I've kind of settled on, and I'm, I'm sure it's not unique to me. I probably read it somewhere, picked it up somewhere, so I'm not, uh, you know, or tweaked it somehow but here's what I would say forgiveness is it's giving up my claim or any right that I might have to hurt you because you hurt me 
It's abandoning any claim that I might have to injure or wound you because of your injury or wound towards me. Now, I think that I've actually actually made reference to this before, but in October of 2019, uh, Brant Jean, uh, whose whose brother was, was murdered by Amber Geiger in the courtroom, actually said to Amber Geiger, who had murdered this man's brother, I forgive you. And you see the picture of them embracing. This was take, took place in a courtroom, in a court of law, where he actually said, because of his faith, he said to her, I forgive you. I give up my right to wound and injure or harm you because you have done damage to me and my family. That's forgiveness. That's what it means to, to, to forgive. Now, Peter's kind of saying, well, okay, seven times. Which, in fact, uh, if you studied it, was a generous suggestion. It demonstrated extenu- or great leniency. <laughs> Because the rabbi said you only needed to forgive a person three times. So Peter doubled it and added one, just for good measure. Okay. Seven times. If they've sinned against me, I can forgive them seven times. What do you think, Lord? It was generous. But now we go to Jesus' response, and Peter's suggestion is dwarfed. Because Jesus' reply affirms and amplifies. Okay? This expectation of forgiveness. Peter kind of is articulating the expectation. Forgive seven times. Now Jesus takes that and amplifies it. And says no. uh, Here's what the deal is. Seventy times seven. Now Jesus is not saying. I don't believe. Saying literally 490 times. Okay. I don't think he's saying literally 490 times. What he's doing is he's speaking in hyperbole. Basically saying. There is no limit on the number of times we should forgive a brother or sister who sins against us and repents. There is to be a limitless supply of forgiveness extended to brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who sin against us, who repent and, and, and who repent. You see, God tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no record of wrong. So we're supposed to forgive again and again and again and again and again and again. That's what we're supposed to do in the body of Christ. Now, Jesus, on a different occasion, using a different analogy, makes the same point in Luke chapter 17, verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, repent, you shall forgive him. Seven times a day, (laughs) you know. Unlimited, okay? Unlimited. It's an expectation. There's no end to the forgiveness extended between fellow believers. But here's the problem. Forgiveness among us is expected. But I have a question. How many of us have, and are maybe even right now, reluctant to extend it? Is there somebody that has sinned against you, that's asked and sought repentance, for whom you're harboring resentment and unwillingness to forgive? 
And Jesus said this is an expectation that we should have. We were expected to forgive. But it goes beyond that. There's the second instruction is, deals with motivation. Our, our motivation for forgiveness within God's family is laid out for us in verses 23 through 35. And Jesus employs two tactics to communicate to us what that motivation might be or how we get to that motivation. First is an illustration. The illustration is a parable. And within the parable, then he gives us an application. But in verses 23 through 34, the parable is of an unforgiving servant that teaches us that forgiveness is to be limitless in the body of Christ. That's the point of the parable. Okay. Now, what's a parable? Isn't it interesting how, to me, it's interesting to me, sorry. It's interesting to me how oftentimes we use words in, the, in Christian lingo, but we really don't really stop to think about what they mean. What is forgiveness? What is a parable? A parable is a true-to-life story, right? It isn't necessarily a true story, but it's a true-to-life story. You could actually see this happening. That communicates a spiritual principle by analogy. It's uh, analogous to something in our own life and our own experience. And so that's what a parable is. And the parable here is he compares the kingdom of God, the realm in which believers exist, to a king who wants to settle accounts with his slaves. And the, the parable, the illustration unfolds kind of in three different scenes. And the first scene, and each of them makes a point, and the first one is this, God in Christ forgives our Maybe a, this is a wrong word, but gargantuan debt, okay? Our huge debt. Uh, in his commentary, Sean O'Donnell aptly observes about this parable, how, it, how much exaggeration there is in this parable. I mean, you think about it as I read the parable. How many slaves would actually incur that much debt? It's kind of, no, that wouldn't happen. And what king would actually forgive that much debt? And then what slave who was forgiven that much debt would go out and not forgive someone who had such little debt? So there's all this exaggeration going on. But God is represented in the parable by the king. Okay? And believers are represented by the slaves. You look at the language. How does Peter start? If my brother sins against me, okay, how often should I forgive them? Okay. So it's brothers and slaves and, and fellow slaves. This is the language of the family of God that we're talking about here. And the story centers around these two particular slaves. And the first slave, probably of a higher rank, because he had actually had means, evidently, to borrow or to get incur this much debt. Uh, he owed how much? What does the text say? How much did he owe? 10,000 talents. Okay, so for all... All the number crunchers here. It was about uh, $10 million. Okay. Now, a talent was worth 6,000 denarii. And a denarii was one day's wage. So about 60 million days worth of work is what he owed. Again, it's like the 70 times 7. The number is so huge that it just means an insurmountable debt okay <laughs> this is impossible he's not gonna he's not gonna pay this debt all right it's an incalculable sum so an unimaginably large amount of money 
which intentionally contrasted how much the other slave owed. Right? So there's a deliberate contrast here between the two. All right? The first slave didn't have the means to repay, it says in verse 28. Uh, but the slave, uh, I'm sorry, verse 25, he didn't have the means to repay. So the, what did the king do? He took punitive measures. Now you read this and you think, wow, this is pretty crazy. He was going to sell the guy, sell his wife and his kids, and, and recoup whatever losses he could. Now how much would all that repay him on 60 million days wages? Uh, relatively nothing. I mean, it was just minimal, right? But he was going to do it. So the person had responsibility for his own debt. He had to take responsibility. But here we see that the incalculable sum, what does it represent? The incalculable sum represents the debt of sin that every human being owes God. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, the prophet said, woe is me, for I am undone, for I live among a people of, un I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. You know, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord. It's, it's an insurmountable debt that is owed. So, how did he react? Hey, pay up. His, he was despondent over the amount of the debt relative to his inability to pay it and so he pled for mercy and he he goes and he he says have patience with me and I will repay you everything <laughs> no not happening you know uh, he's well-meaning but is an impossible ask you know it's not going to happen so in a sense he was paying he was praying and pleading with the guy for forgiveness he's basically Help, I, I, I can't do this. In the same way, in the same way that this slave realized his inability to pay such a massive debt, every person on the planet who recognizes before a holy and righteous God that we have a debt of sin that is impossible for us to pay, we will come to that King, our Lord, and say, I can't do it. Would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? This is the picture that Jesus paints through the parable. We must recognize our spiritual bankruptcy and humble ourselves as this man did, falling on his knees, pleading with the king, Lord, forgive me. That's the picture that's painted here, looking for God in Christ to save us, to extend us this mercy. Now, you get to verse 27, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion. Interesting word in, in Greek, his guts, okay? Uh, in his gut, he felt sorry for the guy. Felt compassion, sympathy, viscerally moved with sympathy, it, the text says, he released him. And that's interesting terminology. He released him from the bonds that held him in slavery. He forgave him. He forgave him his debt. Astonishingly, astonishingly the debt was gone. It's an extraordinary picture of God's mercy to everyone 
who repents and turns from their sin and confesses Christ as Lord of what our salvation is. Every repentant sinner who humbly pleads for mercy will receive the same sort of treatment from God the Father that this, king, this guy received from the king. Forgiveness. Our God hears the cries of, our, of penitent sinners with insurmountable debt from our sin that was paid for by the person and the work of Jesus. We must pay for it or it must be paid. And Jesus died on the cross and what he did for us on the cross, the payment of our debt through his own death is applied to us personally when we exercise faith. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And then we are released from the debt of our sin and we're forgiven. In 2 Peter, 1 Peter actually, uh, 2.24, says in himself, brought our sins, no, he, 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 he paid for our sins on his body, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we're healed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. It's in Christ. The first slave had an impossible debt, and he begged for mercy, and he received it abundantly. Now, what is he doing here? Jesus is underlining the magnitude of our sin, which he has forgiven, to motivate us to forgive those who have sinned far lesser against us. You see, we cannot forgive anybody more than what Christ has forgiven us. That's the picture that he paints. Sadly, that slave, and who's that slave, represents those of us who are not willing to forgive even though we've been forgiven, went out and found his fellow slave who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, so you got a hundred days wages versus 60 million days wages. Now, I'm not going to forgive that guy, says that slave. That slave. The first slave had been forgiven, but the, he was not willing to forgive, which leads to the second scene in the, in the movie. We should forgive as we've been forgiven, verses 28 through 30. Harsh treatment. What do you do? Try to choke him. You know, then he's going to throw him in prison. Maybe it was a debtor's prison where he'd have to work off his, his, uh, his wages. But he, all this stuff that he gave his fellow, it's, 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 it's kind of repulsive, actually, when you think about that. He guys give forgiven $10 million and he won't forgive, you know, a few thousand dollars. What kind of guy does this? What kind of person does this? It's not fair. It's, it's repulsive and it's mad, maddening. And so that slave comes to his debtor, the one he de owes money to, and he says, what, what does he say? He says exactly the same thing as the first slave said to his Lord. He says, have mercy upon me and I will repay you. Nope, no way. Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. He's unwilling to extend a fraction of the mercy that he had been extended. You see how hypocritical it is for us who have been forgiven not to forgive? 
Because we're the first leg. And we've been given an, uh, forget, been forgiven an insurmountable sum of debt of our sin against a holy and righteous God. And then for us to withhold forgiveness from a fellow brother or sister in Christ who, who's repentant, who's sorry, doesn't work. We're guilty of the same hypocrisy. We've been forgiven much. We've been forgiven much initially, which brought about our salvation. But if we're in Christ and we confess with our mouth and we confess our sins, every day we're forgiven. As believers in Christ and restored into fellowship with God. So that should move us to forgive. Forgive a a hurtful comment that's made to us. Perhaps it was an untruth that was told to us or about us that we would be willing to forgive. Perhaps it was an insensitive remark. Perhaps it was excluding us from somebody's activity. We didn't get invited to the party, and so now we're all miffed because we should have been invited to the party. How dare they forget us? How dare they not include us? I, I know a believer who sold a vehicle uh, to another professing believer for a certain sum of money. And only a portion of the money was paid up front, and the rest of the money was to be paid later. And there was a a little bit of debt that was still owed, and the person who had bought the vehicle wasn't willing to pay it, or said that they weren't going to pay it, or said that they had already paid it, which wasn't true. And the believer who sold the vehicle at one point after going to the brother in private, and the, the brother didn't repent and didn't pay the rest of the sum, said, okay, I'm just going to forget it. I'm just going to forgive it. It's just going to be done. I'm not going to hold it against the person. I'm not going to do anything. They forgave as they had been forgiven in Christ. Scene three takes us into the application. Forgive or face God's punishment. That's what Jesus says here at the end in verses 31 through 35. There's two reasons we're given for a limitless, uh, for, uh, limitless forgiveness among believers. There's a positive reason and a negative reason that motivates us. Positively, it's the mercy of God that we have experienced. The merciless treatment of the fellow slave uh, does not go unnoticed by his fellow slaves. Remember that as we read through the text? The fellow slaves are saying, well, this guy was forgiven a whole bunch. Why did he uh, treat his other slave so poorly? It's not unnoticed by that, but it's not, also it's not appreciated by the Lord, okay? If you look at verse 32, it says, and then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave even as I had mercy on you. You know, it should grieve us when we see brothers and sisters in Christ who are lacking forgiveness and who hold bitterness towards one another who aren't forgiving. It's, it's not right when they forget it. Such a rebellion creates disharmony in the body of Christ. It ruins the testimony of the body of Christ. Go to John chapter 17. It, Jesus said it's our unity that becomes a bold testimony to the reality of who Jesus is. And if you're living with lack of forgiveness there is not unity in the body of Christ as believers have experienced God's extravagant forgiveness we should readily extend that forgiveness 
Our insurmountable debt has been forgiven. We should be then compelled by the mercy of God towards us to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness to others. And I said earlier, if you looked at Ephesians chapter 4, I said Colossians 3, but in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, same thing. But be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Hmm. You know, later Paul's going to say, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself. This is death to self stuff here. As God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3, verse 13, same thing is repeated. You know, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. To remain unforgiving is to be wicked. That's what the text says, to be wicked. How does that happen? See, I think part of it is we don't have a firm grasp of the insurmountable debt we've been forgiven. I think we need to spend a little more time reflecting upon what God in Christ has forgiven me. And then what other people have sinned against me will seem rather paltry in comparison. William Arnott illustrates the story of why we should forgive based upon God's mercy. He tells the story of being in Burma. He wasn't necessarily in Burma, but a man in Burma. And the man would cross a river in Burma, and he was covered with leeches. And he started to pull the leeches off, and, the, and his uh, translator said, no, 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 don't do that, because then they'll, you know, some of the leech will stay in you and get infection. So the, the, his servant made him a warm bath, put herbs and stuff in it. And then he sat down in the warm bath and soon the leeches started to release because they reacted against the herbs in the warm bath and they released and released and released and they were all, all gone. And here's how he summarized it. Each unforgiven injury rankling in the heat is like a leech suckling, sucking the lifeblood. Mere human determination to have done with it will not cast the evil thing away. You must bathe your whole being in God's pardoning mercy. And those venomous creatures will instantly let go of their hold. Bathe ourselves in God's unfathomable mercy towards us. And then the leeches of all these offenses against us will lose their hold. If we have trouble forgiving another, we need to spend more time pondering what God in Christ has forgiven us. There's a positive motive, or a negative motivation. The first was a positive motivation, the mercy of God experienced by us. The second one is a negative motion, motivation, the wrath of God that's been promised to us. The unforgiving servant ends up where? <laughs> right where he put the servant he didn't forgive <laughs> in prison and treated just as he treated the fellow slave. You see, God will express his anger towards his people. Now, there's two different ways to look at this passage. Some people would say that, this is a, uh, that the person really wasn't a believer, that it was a professing believer, and that God sent them to hell. Okay? It seems to me from the context that it's uh, speaking about a believer. God has known that he will punish believers who are in sin, but he always does so as a loving father disciplines his children. Hebrews chapter 12. Okay? So when God lovingly disciplines his children, he does so until... The text says he was put there until he, would, uh, until he would repay the debt, which basically means, I think, 
until he would repent and forgive the person that had sinned against him. He'll experience this punishment. You can see it in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they were punished for their sin. You can see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Christians are punished for their sin. So uh, Hebrews chapter 12, different places where God will punish them sin. But discipline is always for love. Until he repays, the Father will treat the believers who refuse to forgive, he'll discipline us. So you want to be under the discipline of the Father, then just continue on in your unforgiveness, your lack of forgiveness. God expects believers to forgive from our heart. Now, what does that mean? We've suffered, or we're going to suffer punishment. To forgive from our heart means that it's something that the Spirit of God does in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, says, The love of Christ, Paul says, The love of Christ controls us, having considered this, that one died for all, therefore all died, that those who live for themselves, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I'm called, you're called, if you're a child of God, to live for Christ, not for myself. Myself wants to get the pound of flesh for the little minute sin against me. God says, No, that's not it. Forgiven people forgive. But we don't do it in our own power. Only the power of Christ in me enables me to forgive. Forgiveness is not easy, but it's not something done by our will. Galatians chapter 5, we are supposed to walk in the Spirit. But I say walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit as well. It's the Spirit of God working in us that enables us to forgive. So if you're listening here, you're here this morning, you're listening, and you, know, you, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I just want to challenge you to think about how great your debt is before a holy and righteous God. A debt that can be forgiven. A debt that separates you from Him. A debt that will wind you up in an eternity apart from Him. It's a chasm. It's too wide. It's a sin, that debt that's too deep, but only in Christ it can be forgiven. Only the riches of God's grace can pay the debt fully. And if you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ, then you will be forgiven as well. And if you're here this morning, you're listening and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the question I have is, does the magnitude of God's mercy we enjoy through Christ move us to express God's forgiveness? Do we have a heart? Do we have a regenerate heart? A heart in which the Spirit of God lives. That has fabulously gained and now freely gives the mercy that we have received. That's what it means to be a child of God. It's not easy. It's impossible apart from the Spirit of God working in us. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. As we take this little wafer and we take the juice, we remember the price that Jesus paid to cover our insurmountable debt. And it should move us That his unfathomable love would cover a debt that we could never pay. And we would pray, God, give us grace to extend the mercy you have extended to us. 
It's a love that makes it possible for all who believe to live and forgive. And if you're here this morning, I'd invite you to spend some time just asking God, you know, to search, search your heart and ask God to reveal any sin and, and confess it and then take the elements and rejoice for what God has done in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for the debt that has been paid through the person and the work of Jesus, with debt that was paid that we remember by the taking of this little wafer and the drinking of this juice that makes it possible, Father, for us to forgive those who have sinned against us and to trust you, Father, to bring justice as we extend mercy. Father, thank you for your love. Help us to show the love of Christ that would bring unity in the body, that would reflect the glory of Jesus in this local assembly, and that would promote purity among us as we seek to live humbly before you. We pray it in Jesus' name.